If you're new here, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, I want to invite you to open up God's Word, if you have it, to Revelation chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. Uh, we'd love to give one to you just as a, as a gift for you. Uh, or if you've got a phone, just Google Revelation 6, but be careful. Uh, there's some weird stuff out there. Uh, this chapter in particular is one of those chapters in which there is both a, uh, a bizarre fascination uh, from the broader culture and a profound misunderstanding of the point of the chapter. Now, we're going to talk about this chapter thematically. There's a specific theme that you will get as soon as we read the text, and that theme continues... Uh, through the entire book of Revelation. In fact, it's one of the predominant themes of Revelation, and yet is one that most Christians, especially in America, uh, try to un- 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 you know, play, uh, underplay or explain away or ignore. Uh, most people, as they read the book of Revelation, read the book of Revelation like this. Revelation 1, there's Jesus. We love that. Two to th- Revelation 2 and 3, letters to the churches. Okay, that's understandable. Revelation 4, the big throne. God's in charge. Revelation 5, Jesus, the lamb that was slain. And then Revelation 6 to 19, it's like eh, something, blah, 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 blah. And then new heavens and new earth at the end. Yay. So we are embarking on the part or into the part of Revelation that we most often ignore, or tends to create the most perverse fascination in the broader culture. But I want us to see this through the lens of the first century. Remember that, that the Apostle John is taking down this revelation, and it was first given to encourage churches in Asia Minor who were being attacked by others, were being opposed by others, who were being seduced by the world, and Jesus sends this letter to them first, and then through them we get to benefit throughout all history, as all Christians benefit from this. So ask yourself as we read this, how and why would Jesus think that this is the most important thing to communicate to his churches in that place? Revelation chapter 6 This is God's word. Verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. Then its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is God's word. And Lord, I pray that as we cover a text that may at first seem strange, it would prove to be strangely encouraging. Lord, you meant this, intended this to build up the church. And I pray that as we understand, we would, we would be open to seeing who you are as you really are, not as we would imagine you to be, and that you would, through that glimpse of you and the glimpse through the ages of history, build up the church. In your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, do we have any Johnny Cash fans at the church? Any fans of the man in black? Mrs. Wheeler, there we go, love it. I got into the Johnny Cash thing late. I actually got into Johnny Cash. The first song, I, the first Johnny Cash song I remember hearing was the song posthumously, posthumously released after he died. That was a celebrity-filled music video. Like every celebrity from everywhere was in this video, sort of as a tribute to Johnny Cash, and. And the, 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 the song was catchy, his old ragged voice was compelling, it was a cool song, and then you started to listen to the song, and you thought, and I remember thinking, well, is that right? The song went like this, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. And as a Christian, I remember thinking, is that right? You know, like, like can I sing, could I sing that? You know, is Johnny Cash allowed to sing that? Uh, and today, you'll often find people open to hearing about a good God, but not an angry God. Uh, I've had multiple people who are not Christians tell me that they like the kind and good Jesus who has children gathered to him and, you know, multiplies bread and heals people and talks about loving your neighbor. They like that Jesus. They don't like the angry, wrathful, vengeful God of the Old Testament. 
but this one is okay, the, the, the nice version of him. We're going to do today a thematic overview of the descriptions of anger and wrath in Revelation because they occur through the book, and we're going to ask, what is God really like? Is God good? Is God angry? And here's what I believe the, this passage and the Bible as a whole teaches. God is good and he is angry. And he is good because he is angry at sin and injustice and evil. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be good. And God is angry precisely because he is good, because he is just, because he is incorruptible, because he alone is untainted by sin and evil. And when we see that, it'll prove to be good news. Now, as we jump into this, remember the context. Revelation 4 shows God on the throne. Revelation 5, the, the purposes of God are bound up in this scroll with seven seals, and, and the Lamb, Jesus, takes the scroll and, set, and basically says he will execute the purposes of God. The purposes of God are for judgment and redemption through the ages. And the G.K. Beale sums it up like this. Through his death and resurrection... Christ has made the world forces of evil his agents to execute his purposes of sanctification and judgment for the purposes of his kingdom. All right, three sections today. The, the first and longest will be the wrath of the Lamb described. What is this wrath? First, we learn that the wrath of the Lamb is clear and is furious. Now, in the structure of the text, there was a, that you'll see the four horsemen or the four horsemen of the apocalypse, riding out, causing devastation, but they are being armed. They are being given authority. They are being assigned a task, as it were. And you see those, that phrasing, they were given. He was given a bow. This was given, he was given a sword. These mirror the passages of God doing something similar in the book of Zechariah with chariots riding out. And the first horseman causes... Uh, conquering and invasions. So perhaps the best way to look at it is one nation invading another nation and wars between nations. The second horseman seems to cause civil war. So people inside of a country fighting each other. The third horseman causes uh, economic devastation and starvation in a sense. And the fourth horseman causes pestilence and disease and wild beasts. And, and essentially the picture is that death has corrupted all of creation and creation is turned against itself, against humanity. Although I will, I will say, uh, in light of recent news, it is funny that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are war, civil war, uh, pestilence, and inflation. In case you're wondering about the th that third phrase, like the court of weed for the denarius, you're like, what in the world is that about? Well, what it means is you go into Walmart and you're going to fill up on gas and you're like, is it $5 a gallon now? That's what it's talking about. It's saying that the prices have become inflated. You can't even buy the necessities that you need. Now, they together form a full picture of humanity at war with itself, creation at war with humanity, people going hungry, people being hurt. Now, similarly then, in Revelation 8, there is a second series of judgments. There are eight, uh, not eight, sorry, seven trumpets that are sounded, and often you'll find there'll be six trumpets of judgment, and then the seventh will be sort of a culmination 
And so in this case, you see in Revelation 8 that every facet of creation laid out in Genesis 1 and 2 is destroyed. So in other words, the seas, they're turned undrinkable. The skies darken and stars fall down. The mountains pulled down. Creation and the living things turn on one another. There's, if Genesis 1 and 2 is the progressive creation, Revelation 8 is the progressive uncreation. Then, lest you think, okay, well, man, those two sections were crazy, but I'm glad we're done with that. Nope. Revelation 14, God's wrath is pictured as a wine press, and the wicked, this is one of the most terrifying and startling images in Scripture, the wicked are seen as those in the wine press, and God in judgment is treading, stomping, smashing on the wine press. That's Revelation 14. Revelation 15, seven plagues are poured out, mirroring the plagues against the Egyptians. Revelation 16, seven bowls of wrath are poured out. Here's what I want you to see. This is not a sub-theme in Revelation tucked away in a corner. Neither is this a sub-theme in the Bible. Read the Old Testament. See God's judgment brought against the Egyptians, but then see God's judgment brought against the evil and the unjust even among his people as the ground opens and people are swallowed, where, where wrath is poured out against his people through uh, Babylon and Assyria, and then in turn, because of their wickedness, others conquer them. Unless you think, okay, well, Jesus, Jesus surely is the nice guy. Maybe the Bible is sort of an extended good cop, bad cop thing where God the Father in the Old Testament is the bad cop, like, you guys better behave. And then Jesus comes out and he's like, hey, everybody, just be cool and love one another. That, that, we, we tend to think about Jesus that way. In fact, Jesus is the person that speaks most about hell and judgment in the New Testament. Go back and read the book of Mark. Here's what I want you to see. The, 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 the wrath of the Lamb is a clear theme in scripture. It can't be ignored. And if our view of God doesn't allow for an angry God, then it is not the view of God in the Bible. Second thing we learn, the wrath of the lamb is partial and present. Now, one of the key questions about these four horsemen of the apocalypse are whether they uh, point to something that happened in the first century or something that happened uh, now or something that will happen in the future, right? And here's the, here's the irony. Every century, somebody comes out, and you can see this even in like church history. Every century, especially uh, the Middle Ages, people were like, this is it. It's the end. And how do they know? Well, first of all, we have wars between nations. Huh? Second, civil wars. Huh? Third, economic devastation. And fourth, plague. And so everybody... And, you know, so when the Black Death comes, they're like, oh, 100 years war and civil war and the Black Death and economic devastation. This is it. We're in the end times. Right? And then the centuries kept rolling. And then in World War I, it's the Great War. And then the Spanish flu. And then the Great Depression. And then, you know. And then it, my dad was sharing with me during the Cold War uh, that people regularly were like, this is it. This is it. Nuclear combat. And this is, you know, and, and we, we, you know, we're, we're now back to that, I guess. Um, and so every age wrestles with this. Now, what's the best way to interpret this then? Well, the best way to interpret this is, it seems to be that the, 
the four horsemen are unleashed after Christ's ascension and continue to ride in their way until the final judgment. G.K. Beale says this, the plagues of the four horsemen are symbolic of the suffering of many throughout the earth, which will continue until the final return of Christ. So here's what you should see. God is sovereign, and part of his justice and judgment occurs even now. Even now. Now, as we'll, we, we could do a thematic overview in Scripture of the purposes of God and judgment. Um, one of those purposes, well, one of the realities of judgment is that we're just Christians living in a fallen world and we experience the fallenness of the world. And one of the consequences of sin is that God gives humanity over to our fallenness and does not restrain us. Other times we see God using discipline in our lives in in these ways, or sometimes God purifies his church through sin. All of these could be part of the purpose of God through this judgment, which is partial and present. And so some people are like, we're not going to be present during the bad stuff in Revelation, right? Sorry, here you are, right? This is your present. but, But all Christians, in a sense, and this should be a comfort to you, have been present. And and part of the purpose of God is that the people of God throughout the age, especially in the first century, um, would not, would would say, look, this is what's happening. The world is in turmoil. And rather than going, things are out of control, we're going to die, they should say, no, no, Jesus is firmly in control and he's using these things for his good purposes. In other words, don't freak out because you think you're off the road. See the rough road as, yep, Jesus told us it would be rough. We're on the right road. All right, third, the wrath of the Lamb is coming soon in fullness. Now, you'll see the first four, then a a pause in five for the martyrs, which we'll deal with, and then the sixth seal. Now, the sixth seal, uh, in contrast to the first four seals, is not partial judgment. It is complete judgment. It is universal judgment. Uh, this is the, what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. Uh, it is the day of ultimate judgment on the earth. And we see this because even stars are destroyed. The sky is rolled up and every single person is affected regardless of who they are, right? The rich, their wealth will not protect them against this. The generals, their armies will not protect them against this. The the great ones and kings, their power won't protect them. Everything is being undone. Now, very much you're probably wondering, okay, well, what, so first four are kind of now, six is coming. How do we make sense of the timelines and chronology then of uh, Revelation. Now, we'll talk more about this as we go, but I want to show you some drawings that I did. Please make fun of them um, because this is the best I can do with my finger on an iPad. Um, side note, if you're wondering, like, could Ricky receive help and learn to draw or write better? The answer is no, because once at one point, my parents uh, had us do art lessons And after a series of weeks, the art teacher came to my mom and said, there's nothing I can do with him. So (laughs) this is what it will be. If you're going to be part of the church, just get used to this. So 
But this is a diagram in the way that some see the unfolding of Revelation. So you have the cross and resurrection of Jesus and ascension, and then you have the very end, the day of the Lord, and in the middle there is history. So some people would view Revelation as progressively kind of these seven judgments that occur repeatedly through Revelation are sort of each are chronological and keep occurring until the great day at the end, okay? Now others, second slide, this is one's even worse, I'm sorry, um, would notice that in Revelation, some things occur out of sequence. For example, in Revelation 12, when we get there, seems very strongly to be about the birth of Christ. And you're like, well, how does that fit in the timeline? So some people will then say, okay, some of these seven uh, sevens of judgment some of them may be looking at the same events from different angles, almost like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John look at the life of Jesus through different, slightly different angles that are complementary. There are, there are different um, uh, sec- sections of judgment that, that overlap. For example, one good uh, reading could be Revelation 6. Uh, the sixth seal, the day of judgment, is then unfolded in full in Revelation 8, and Revelation 8 is kind of all tucked into Revelation 6. If you're losing track of this, it's okay. There's three people I'm talking to right now, and they need this. Uh, <laughs> So, basically, this is what I would encourage you to think about. Uh, what, what is clear, and this, is, I'm not, this, isn't, this, this may not be perfectly the structure of Revelation historically, but it is very much the structure of Revelation thematically, where the same types of events keep occurring, and they seem to keep occurring with greater intensity until the end. So there's judgment and God's people are preserved and they're martyred and the gospel advances and there's judgment and evil. God's people are preserved. There's martyrs and judgment, you know, and it, they keep going and it, and it eventually culminates in the day of the Lord. Now, um, you could take away my terrible drawing. Uh, here's what I want you to get. There's a sense in which from, from the first four seals that judgment is now But there is a sense in which, according to Revelation 6, the final day of the Lord is yet to come. So, fourth, let's cover this. The wrath of the Lamb is just. Now, we know from all of Scripture that God's judgment is just, but we see a compelling example of it in the fifth seal, where the the people of God, the martyrs of God, who are unjustly killed, cry out, O sovereign Lord, meaning they acknowledge the Lamb is sovereign. Holy and true, they acknowledge that He's incorruptible. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They, They are crying out for justice. They have been unjustly murdered as, as kind of a, an exemplar of the kind of injustice that occurs throughout history. And this leads to their cry of judgment, or, or the cry for justice and judgment. Uh, Johnny Cash sang in another song, well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, What's done in the dark will be brought to the light. Meaning this, this is the truth about an angry God in the Bible. If he sees the world as it is, he must be angry if he is good. If this is true, if he is holy and true, he must be angry. And if he is sovereign, he must do something about it. That is what the scripture says of 
God. Wayne Grudem says this, what would God be like if he were a God that did not hate sin? He would then be a God who either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship for sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It is, in fact, a virtue to hate evil and sin, and we rightly imitate this attribute of God when we feel hatred against great evil, injustice, and sin. Take just one example, the the issue of child abuse. According to the Children's Advocacy Center, In 2010, 1,537 children died of abuse or neglect. One in three to four girls and one out of five to six boys will be abused before they reach age 18. 90% of abuse victims know the perpetrator in some way, and 68% are abused by a family member. For every incident of child abuse or neglect that's reported, an estimated two incidents go unreported. Child abuse occurs across all socioeconomic levels, ethnic and cultural lines, religion and education levels, and neglect, the most widespread form of abuse, makes up more than 59% of abuse cases. That's just one issue, brothers and sisters. That's just one thing. Like, I don't know if I've ever felt this more strongly than when a number of years ago, I gotta be careful with the details of this, a number of years ago, we, when I was leading our singles group, we had a girl in the group come forward. She was an adult at that time and share that a family member had been repeatedly abusing her since the age of 13. And we, we walked with her through reporting it, through testifying against this family member, through this person going to jail. But I just remember feeling when the person was sentenced, when this family member was sentenced for what he had done, everything in the fiber of my being, seeing this girl's face and talking to her, everything in the fiber of my being said, it is not enough for him to spend a few years in jail. It's not enough. Look, when we see the reality of the world around us, we should cry out with the martyrs, How long, O Lord? We know you are sovereign. We know you are good. How long? How long until war crimes in dark parts of Africa who are unreported and undefended are avenged? How long until human traffickers are exposed and judged. How long, O Lord? And Revelation, the book of Revelation is the answer. Judgment is now, and judgment will come in fullness soon. And if God is not angry, he is not good. But the Bible causes us to rejoice that the wrath of the Lamb is kindled against the evil.
And last thing we learn about the wrath of the Lamb is that the wrath of the Lamb brings peace. The ultimate arc of Revelation is toward the eternal rest that God's people sing about in Revelation 7, where they are hungry no more, where they're afflicted no more, where God is in their midst, where every tear is dried. In Revelation 11, the culmination of the seven trumpets of wrath, there's a voice that cries, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The wrath of God is not capricious. It is not devastating for devastation's sake. It is no kid with a magnifying glass burning ants on the sidewalk just to see them writhe around. The wrath of God is necessary to put away evil and injustice so that the peace of his people and of the new creation can be protected for all eternity. Second, the wrath of the Lamb escaped. If we rightly understand the wrath of the Lamb, we will tremble. We should tremble because the wrath of the Lamb is for all who are unjust. Now, Johnny Cash has a strange connection to the city of El Paso. Did you know that Johnny Cash made a very famous visit that occurs in every biography of Johnny Cash to this very city, the city of El Paso? And those of you who know the story, you're like, oh boy. Because Johnny Cash came here to go to Wattis and uh, purchase a large amount of drugs. And I think may either have purchased or had on his person an unlicensed firearm. And uh, as he tried to leave on a plane, he was arrested, booked. There's a mugshot of him in El Paso. Uh, I think I saw some kid wearing it on a T-shirt, which was weird. But I don't understand youth culture. So... In that era, here's what you got to know about Johnny Cash. In addition to being addicted to drugs, in addition to cheating on his wife repeatedly, in addition to having two young daughters he left alone for long periods of time, he repeatedly lied, he harmed those close to him. At one point, he tried to burn himself and a friend down when he was too drunk in the middle of a forest. And this pattern occurred again and again and again. And he would say later in an interview... I was evil. I was pure evil. He would later cover, as a bizarre thing, which was amazing, uh, he covered the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt, and in his old ragged voice sang about this period of his life, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. Now here's the thing, Johnny Cash gets right. He got that he was on the wrong side of justice, and he got that sooner or later, God would come for the unjust. What do we do then? We, we are all left at verse 17 in the crowd, and we say, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The good news is that chapter 7 occurs, and I'm going to just recover for an instant what Vince covered so well last week as we see the connection of these two texts. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. And remember the, the cry, who can stand? 7, 9. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 13, how does this happen? Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you see these two groups? Two groups. One, it says, who can stand? And, and, and their view of God, their view of the throne, their view of the Lamb is who can stand against the, the wrath, against injustice. And yet there is this other group that they are standing. They are clothed in white. And when they look at the throne, they rejoice. And when they look at the Lamb, they rejoice. How can this be? What is the difference between the two of them? Is it that these finally did 100,000 good deeds? Is it that they were born into the right family, or they come from the right nation, or they sat in the right church? No, the only thing that separates this group from this group is that this group has washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And the good news of the Bible is that anyone can. Anyone, even people who let others down, even people who let, make others hurt, even people who, like Johnny Cash, would say that they are pure evil, they can be washed. Johnny Cash, in a song, Redemption Day, says this, from his hands it came down, from the side it came down, from the feet it came down, and ran to the ground between heaven and hell, a teardrop fell in the deep crimson dew, the tree of life grew, and the blood gave life to the branches of the tree, and the blood was the price that set the captives free, and the numbers that came through the fire and the flood clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood. Oh, friend, if, if you are not a Christian, let me just encourage you to see yourself rightly and see which group you are in today. If you've not washed your robe, as it were, in the blood of the Lamb, the robe meaning, like, in a sense, it represents your deeds, who you are, your righteousness. And if you look down and you think, man, I've let people down, I've made them hurt, I would be one of those that would be judged. Hear the open invitation. You don't have to do 100,000 good deeds and come back. You just come to Jesus. Come to the Lamb. Claim his mercy and join his people today. And for those of us who are Christians, you know, one of the things that, that I, one of the questions I get a lot about Revelation, especially from folks who kind of have that sequential view of Revelation, they are really concerned with, okay, when do the Christians get pulled out though, Right? Like, like, this is, like, I don't love this stuff. And Ricky was already disappointing me, saying that apparently I'm already here for the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I don't like. So when do I get sliced out and get to watch everything crazy happening? I'm not going to be here for the worst of it, right? Here is one thing that every single orthodox commentator on the book of Revelation agrees on. Brother or sister in Christ, you will not be there for the worst of it. 
because the wrath of the Lamb has been absorbed by the Lamb for you. So, man, whatever, whatever your view of revelation is, look, you can rest. You can go to sleep tonight rather than being like, where do I get off the bus? Just get, get these two things. One, Jesus has got you. And two, because of the Lamb, the wrath of God will pass over you. And you will join that multitude who will hunger and thirst no more. And the sun shall not strike them, for the lamb will be in the midst of the throne. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's your future. All right, very briefly now, the wrath of the lamb applied. The wrath of the lamb applied. How, how then do we think about this? Well, first, the wrath of the lamb is sobering. Sobering. In Revelation 2 and 3, there are areas of compromise with these churches, and uh, this is meant to help reinforce to them that sin is serious. Injustice is serious. Uh, Colossians 3 says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Brother or sister, is there a sin that you're trifling with, a sin that you're playing with? Does what makes God angry make you angry? Sometimes I think in our American culture, we, we are used to a number of sins, right? We're, used, we're just kind of casually like, well, you know. And even you, you encounter these moments where like, you know, maybe, maybe you have somebody that has been married for a number of years, but their heart leads them away from their spouse. In American culture, it's like, oh, you've got to follow your heart. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to do you, right? And they applaud the person. Yeah, leave that spouse. Go chase your dream. You don't love them anymore. And in light of Scripture, God is grieved that the picture of Christ in the church is being torn apart for someone pursuing sin. Let's set our definitions of justice according to the Bible and be sobered. Second, the wrath of the Lamb is comforting. There is so much injustice in this world. Look, there's certain occupations you see it. I've, I've talked to social workers in our church that see the, the injustice. I've talked to law enforcement people in our church that see evil and injustice. As a pastor, you see it. As a pastor, I've sat in the police station as someone has gone inside to make a report of assault, right? You see this, you feel this. How do we stay sane in an insane world? Revelation 6. Even now, God brings your measure of justice, and one day justice will be poured out in full. In the end, hear this. Nobody will say God was unjust. In the end... Every wrong will be made right. So we look forward to that in comfort. Third, the wrath of the Lamb is freeing. Um, apart from the wrath of the Lamb, we would be tempted to go, man, we have to be the people that have to ultimately bring justice. I had this one friend who would always get real mad, and his dad made him memorize the verse, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, which I thought was a weird thing to have a kid memorize. But the, the, the verse has a point. Meaning this, God will ultimately bring justice. So therefore, we can, we, we can try to act justly in the spheres that God has given us, try to act justly in our jobs and in our communities, but 
we can be free from the burden of, man, we've got we've to do enough things to bring about some justice utopia. Here's the problem with justice on earth. And, I, and there's some ways that there's a commendable desire from Gen Z and, and the millennials for justice, which is not always calibrated according to biblical justice, so read your Bible. But one of the things that is problematic about the millennial and Gen Z pursuit of justice is failing to acknowledge that once you have a group of unjust people up here and then other people down here, once the unjust people get deposed, they will get replaced by more unjust people. Right? This is the reality. There, there is no ultimate human resolution. This sort of critical theory framework of the people in power getting replaced by the people not in power, that's all across the Bible. And the problem is power doesn't corrupt people. Power reveals what's in our hearts. So if you're, if you're like, man, we're going to be the generation to do it, just set your expectations in a better place. You may act justly, and God used that to give glimpses of his perfect justice, which is beautiful and commendable. But our ultimate hope is the justice of the Lamb. And that is so freeing. All right, last, the wrath of the Lamb is focusing. You'll see that in Revelation uh, 6, one of, the, one of the things it said is that the number of martyrs is not yet complete. In Revelation 7, we see this complete multitude of, of every tribe, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group. So what is clear here is that the Lamb has a plan. He is gathering a people for himself. That is one of the purposes for which the Lamb delays the ultimate day of the Lord. Look, brother or sister, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because the Lord in his mercy delayed the day of the Lord that you may be gathered to his people. Isn't that good news? And so all of us, man, we long for that day. We long for that day of perfect justice, but we should also thank God for his patience that more may hear about the offer of the lamb to wash your robes white in the blood of the lamb. Wayne Grudem says this, when we think of the, God's wrath to come, we should simultaneously be thankful for his patience in waiting to execute that wrath in order that yet more people may be saved. He quotes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some account slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Grudem is pointing us to the fact that, that, that man, we should be focused in this life on helping more people hear about Jesus. The Lord delays in his kindness, and every year he does, may we tell others about him. May we point others to him. What are your priorities in life, right? Is it this? It should be. All right, well, let me conclude this way. When, when Johnny Cash was 12, his brother Jack was severely injured in a table saw accident. And at the hospital, Jack, who seemed to have a genuine faith, told Johnny and the rest of his family, the last words he spoke to his family were, meet me in heaven. Perhaps it was appropriate then that Johnny Cash's last posthumous record was titled, Ain't No Grave, 
and contained an elderly Johnny Cash with his voice cracking and straining, singing the old song, Ain't No Grave Can Hold My Body Down. And contained the beautiful line, Will Jesus meet me? Jesus meet me. Meet me in the middle of the air. Why could the same man who sang God's going to cut you down and the same man who called himself an evil man hope to meet Jesus and his brother in the air because of the blood of Jesus who died for sinners? Now, was Johnny Cash a genuine Christian? I don't know. But God knows, and Johnny knows, and I think the hope he held out is genuine. So now let's transition to that hope in the Lord's Supper. Take that cup at your seat, and if you are in Christ, you are welcome to take communion with us. If you're not in Christ, we would ask you to just refrain but observe what the Lord has done in picturing the sacrifice of Jesus through the bread and the cup. Luke 22 says this, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this. And divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Lord's Supper is both a picture of what God has done for us and a promise from Jesus that one day he will eat and drink with us when the kingdom comes. So every time we do it, it is both a reminder of what he has done, but a promise of what he will do. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please take the bread. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Please drink in remembrance of him. And now let's stand and sing. Jesus, we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day that you promise that you will eat and drink with us. In this world of injustice, help us not to be overwhelmed or burdens, or hopeless. Help us to have a deep hope that you see, you know, and in the end, you will make everything right. May we rejoice that we are those counted among those with robes gathered around the throne, standing and rejoicing that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Amen.